So um, uh, we we gave you a little bit of information about uh, about Pastor Mike last week. He's a founding pastor of Compass Bible Church in Alyssa Vejo. Uh, you that's West Virginia translation for uh, where he's from in California. And um, his uh, wife Carolyn uh, is there with him. Three children um, went met in high school. So did Tracy and I. Went to Moody together and University of uh, of Arizona and then a couple other places. And I was introduced to you uh, in the doctoral program at Masters, Preaching That Changes Lives, and um, one of your books. So I'm looking forward to the word changing some lives today. Come and preach, brother. Well, it is good to be here. I bring you greetings from Southern California, uh, specifically from the the Christians there at Compass Bible Church. There are a few Christians left in Southern California. <laughs> Not many, but uh, there are a few of us. And uh, we certainly send you greetings. We are between L.A. and San Diego in Orange County. And uh, most people don't know where Aliso Viejo is, let alone pronounce it. Um, but we're, yeah, we're about 15, 20 miles south of Disneyland. So... I know you think the whole area is Disneyland um, in Southern California, and I can't really argue with that, but uh, that's where we are near Irvine in the newest city of Orange County, Aliso Viejo, and we certainly bring you greetings. It's great to be in churches like this that are like-minded, that believe the kinds of things that you believe and are critically focused on things that are most important, we believe, to God, and we are so grateful just to have many people at Compass praying for you this morning, and I hope that at some point you would pray for them, and we're just glad to be here sharing the good news. I mean, the things that we were singing about this morning, the things that were put on that screen that we were celebrating, what good news that is, right? I mean, that's why at one point we were called the evangelicals. We still may be, although that term is deteriorating a bit in our day. It's just a transliteration of the Greek word euangelion, the good news, right? And it's great to get together on the weekend, on Sunday, and celebrate the good news. But the problem is you're going to go Monday and start listening again to the bad news that you've been listening to all week long. And maybe some of you are sick of the news at this point because it seems like it's exponentially getting worse and worse and worse, right? Words like Ebola. How many times have you heard that last week, right? Uh, ISIS, uh, radicalized. And, you know, it's, it's bad news. And then when you really listen to the stories or you read the articles, I mean, this is really bad news, is it not? I mean, you think about this. Ebola comes to Dallas. It comes to New York. We've got, uh, you know, these, these Islamist uh, radicals taking a hatchet to police officers, right, in Queens. You saw that story? And worse yet, you look at what's going on overseas in cities like Mosul. I mean, were you bold enough to look at some of the pictures of Christians literally crucified? Right? I mean, this is happening this year. Literally hung up for dead in the city square. You've got people being beheaded. I mean, you've got fears. I mean, we still have all the climate news, all the fears that the sky is falling. We've got all kinds of news. And if you look at it honestly, you say, it, it, it is bad. I mean, it's serious. Words like pandemic. I mean, things that really are concerning to anyone who's rational. You can put your head in the sand, but those are, those are some bad news stories. And in light of that, I was struck reading recently in Psalm 112. You don't need to turn there, but let me quote a couple lines from Psalm 112. It says, The righteous will never be shaken. 
The righteous are not afraid of bad news. Listen to this line. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not be afraid. Think about that. I think that's a challenge for the righteous, right? I mean, we are part of God's band, but it is hard for us to look at that and not be a, a little bit unsettled in our minds. To have that anxiety and that worry. I mean, you've got kids. Where's it going to be in 10 years? 20 years? You've got grandkids. You're looking at the world thinking, where is it going to be when they're your age? I mean, what kind of world are we living in for Christians? You've got the, the passivity of our highest court in the land, in essence being activists and seeing the entire moral foundation of our society eroding as we watch it happen in a matter of, of years. Think of the change that we've seen. And we worry about it. And we're afraid. Yet the Bible says, listen, the righteous, never shaken, not afraid of bad news. Our heart is steadfast because we trust in the Lord. Our heart is upheld. We will not be afraid. That, that is a great challenge for us, and that's never going to happen. We will never achieve that kind of tranquility in the midst of, of really just chaos in our society until we get to the place where we recognize what it means to trust in the Lord in a real and practical way. Every day we read the headlines. Every day we hear the news. Every day we see what's going on morally in our country. And recognize that we can be, as, as Proverbs 28 says, bold as a lion. The righteous are as bold as a lion. It's the wicked that are supposed to be fearful and trembling and, and filled with trepidation and anxiety and worry. But it's the righteous that are square and they are settled. Their heart is steadfast. And the way to do that is to recognize that we stand with the omnipotent, sovereign king. Right? We are in his flock. I love the way he says, my little flock. We are his flock in this world, and you are not without the leadership of the omnipotent, sovereign king. And I want to remind you of that this morning from what is probably the most familiar passage in all of the Bible. Right? Even non-Christians know this one, Psalm 23. And if you haven't opened up to that passage yet, I want you to look at that afresh. I want to take a look at these very familiar words and consider the challenge, which really I find is bound up in verses 4 and 5. I mean, there's the heart of it. The prelude, if you will, is recalling all the things that God has done in verses 1 through 3. Now, we've had it read for us, but let's look at that first section of Psalm 23, beginning in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, of course, we know David wrote this. He knew what it was to be a shepherd. He knew what it was to, to, to lead the sheep and have them follow along. And he says, that's how I recognize my position in this world. And if you want to know someone who knew bad news, David knew a lot of bad news, right? Number one, you know, most wanted person. His, his, his face was plastered all over the post office you know, in ancient Israel. Uh, the king was pursuing him. He knew what bad news was, but he says, you know what? I am a part of the flock of God. The Lord is my shepherd. And because of that, I shall not want. Now, our translations take this way back from Tyndale's translation, and we really haven't messed much with this. And want really doesn't mean what want used to mean. Uh, you read this, and if you read it, and you've never heard the Bible before, I shall not want, you'd think this is some kind of prosperity promise, right? Of course, it's not all that I desire, but in the old English sense, the way that Tyndale and King James translation used to mean this, is that I, I will not be in want. There's nothing really I will ever lack. There's nothing that I need that I won't be provided because I am in his flock. He is my shepherd. I'll have all that I need. And then he looks back. 
I want to make the case that we have a real shift between verses 3 and 4. And what we have in verses 2 and 3 is a list of things that I wish we had time to elaborate on. But let's at least give you the categories. I want to show you what he's doing here in thinking through the fact that he's got all that he needs as a part of the little flock of God. The cared for flock led by the omnipotent one. I want us to recognize that what he's doing in verses 2 and 3 is looking back to be able to face the present. See, if we're going to face the daunting realities of life for us in the 21st century, we've got to be looking back in our own lives and recognizing the way he's provided for us in the past gives me courage to face the present. And take a look at what he does. Catalogs four things. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, how can he say those things? Because he can look at his life and he can see them. He can see the times when he's been provided all of those things. Right? It's like the old hymn. We sang about grace here just a minute ago. Remember the old line from John Newton's hymn? Right? Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Right? Tis grace that's brought me safe thus far. See, there's the line. And grace will bring me home. See, the gracious provision of God in our past needs to be chronicled. It needs to be journaled. It needs to be memorialized in our lives. That's why I hope that every single person hearing my voice this morning keeps some record of the things that God has done in your life. You're journaling. You're keeping track. We're not only getting up on Sunday and and praying for people, but when God answers and supplies, when he gives us the things that we need, we, we write that down. We remember it. There's a lot of rock piling in the Old Testament. They would put these monuments up and say, remember what God did here. Four things. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Let's just think of that for a second. If you're a lamb in a flock and you've got a shepherd leading you, you need to be led to a place where you're going to have green pastures because that's your food. You need a place to lie down that's comfortable. You need to sleep. You need just the basic provisions of life. And I'm looking out at a crowd right now. I think you could chronicle that God has given you the basic provisions of life. Has not? I mean, you might be driving the car that you might envy that your neighbor drives, but you got here, and you're well-dressed, and most of us have had more than three squares a day. Am I right? You, You get all that you need. Have you really stopped to thank God that he does give us our daily bread? Is it just a kind of the... just the, the, the prerequisite prayer before a meal, or do you really stop and recognize that the reason I can face the present is because look at God providing for me everything, every day that I need, just for my physical well-being. And not only that, it goes further in the next phrase in verse 2. He leads me beside those, those still or quiet waters. There are those times that I look back in my life and I say, look at that period of peace and tranquility. It may be right now that things really, they, they, they stir up anxiety and fear in my heart, but I, I look back and I watch how God has taken me through periods of my life where I realize God is on the throne, it's almost palpable. I feel it, I know it, God is in charge, and he's just laid me down there in that particular period of my life and said, you know what, God's got this covered. You've got to chronicle those things. You've got to remember those things. You've got to say, you're right. Not only have I had every physical need met in my life, I'm not living under an underpass. I'm not starving to death. But I can look back in my life and see, you know, tis grace that's brought me safe thus far. And I realize that God is a God who's breaking through sometimes those storms. And he's showing that he's got the power over circumstances. I know he's in charge. I know he's powerful. I know he can do these things. And it really gets to the point of my own spiritual life, knowing in a way that no one else can really testify to but me. 
Verse 3, He restores my soul. There's something about the presence of God in my life that even in the midst of trial, like Romans chapter 8 talks about, like sheep led to the slaughter, that's the picture in Romans 8. He says, yet it's His Spirit that testifies to my spirit that I'm a child of God. Have you had those times when your soul has been so refreshed in the light of maybe a Bible study or a time that you've just had praying with God and you say, there's no doubt in my mind that God is my God, that I am forgiven, that I am in His family, that He loves me. I mean, there's times like that we just have to stop and and chronicle those things. Memorialize them. Write them down. Say, look at how God has provided for me in my past. He has restored my soul. And He's guided me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. You know, the sheep just follow the shepherd. They're not sure where he's taking them, but the shepherd knows where he's taking the sheep. And I think all of us can attest in this very poetic picture here that there have been places where the shepherd has taken us in our lives that we would never have chosen to go, right? I mean, smile at me if that's the reality for you. You've taken some left turns in your life. You think, I never would have planned that for my my life. You know, that job change, that geographic change, that situation that happened to me with that lawsuit, whatever it might be, I never would have chosen that. But you can look back at that, can't you? And you can see this was a path of righteousness. God accomplished His good in this. You know the old line that can be tritely thrown out in the midst of suffering? and I mean, we don't want to use it as a trite, sentimental line, but it's certainly true, Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good. I mean, if I opened up the microphone and we we started a line here, could anybody testify to that, that even when it looked dark and bleak and difficult, He worked that together for His good, for the good of righteousness' sake, that God did things through that trial you never would have anticipated? Absolutely. And you know that's true. You need to chronicle that. You need to write it down. You need to remember that. You need to memorialize that and say, you know, I can look back and recognize the shepherd is good. He's provided all that I've needed. And when we face things like ISIS and Ebola, remember before it was ISIS, it was Al-Qaeda, right? Before it was Al-Qaeda, it was, you know, Saddam Hussein. Before it was Saddam Hussein, it was, you know, the Soviet Union. And before that, it was the Viet Cong. And before that, it was the Nazis. And before that, it was the Romans. And before that, it was the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the Egyptians. Can I go on? You know what I'm talking about here. Tis grace that's brought me safe thus far. And our spiritual forefathers could attest to this. Tis grace will bring me home. God is in charge. God is a God who provides. God has given you all that you need. Maybe not everything that you want, but He's laid you down in green pastures and given you all the provision. He's led you beside still waters. He's restored your soul. He's guided you in paths you never would have picked, but you know those are righteous paths for His name's sake. You know that. And we need to rejoice in that and celebrate that. Because before it was Ebola, it was, you know, the H1N1, it was the swine flu, bird flu. Pigeon flu. I don't know what, you know, it was something else. It was anthrax. It was, you know, whatever. You could go on with all these things. We've had these before. And our spiritual forefathers and some of those in this room that have lived through some of those very difficult times can say God is faithful. God is good. God has cared for his little flock. The shepherd's still in charge. He's leading us. The Lord is my shepherd. 
shall not want. Now I want you to look at verses 2 and 3 again. We've just read those and we didn't have time to elaborate on them, but we see some categories there of God's great provision. And in the past when we see those things, you see that God, the Father here in this case, the triune God, is represented with a pronoun and, and it's in the third person. He does this. He does that. He's restored my soul. He's guided me. Do you see all that? And that's important. That's looking back at what he's done. And before I even leave that, I think, I think of David who wrote this. You know, you want to see practical use of this kind of pattern, this paradigm? When David was there as probably a late teenager, seeing this giant hairy man defying the God of Israel, standing in the valley there, and, and of course, you know, his name was Goliath, and he said, who, who in the world is going to take this, this guy down, this Philistine, this one that's mocking God and the armies of God? And everyone was scared. Everyone was afraid. It was a standoff. And then he said this when he went in and said, oh, I'll do it. Why? He said, because God has delivered me from the paw of the lion. God has delivered me from the paw of the bear. And God will deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. See, if you look back, you can have a lot of hope for the present. And that's the shift I want you to note in your Bibles, right here between verses 3 and 4. We no longer refer to God now in the third person. This is why I think the emphasis of this psalm is right here, verses 4 and 5. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for He is with me. Is that what it says? Does it say He? Correct me if I read that wrong. Does it say He? Interactive Virginia Church? No? What does it say? You. Do you see that? It's real personal now. You are with me. It doesn't say his rod and his staff comfort me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. The, the pronouns shift. I think we need to read Psalm 23 as the prescription for the present daunting situation. As it's described in verse 4, the valley of the shadow of death. A time when you are, verse 5, surrounded by your enemies. Turn on the news. Right? It seems like the enemies are encroaching. I mean, the secular moral enemies of the church of Jesus Christ. Right? The religious, militant enemies of Jesus' followers. Right? It, they're encroaching. Now, here we are surrounded. And what I would like, I would like God to vanquish my enemies, wouldn't you? I mean, those are, those are the prayers I pray. Whether it's on a national scene or whether it's on a personal scene, I want God to defeat those who are evil and wicked, who want to harm Christians, want to harm my family. They want to do evil in the church. I, I want them to be vanquished. But that passage here doesn't give us that picture. It, it paints the picture of God walking me through this of Jesus being my good shepherd who guides me through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't lead me to the plateau. Right now I'm going through the, the darkness of the shadow. And my enemies, there they are, threatening. And yet in the middle of all that, there's a table prepared for me. Now let's start with a couple of details here. Verse number 4. I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And like Psalm 112 says, that the righteous aren't going to fear. Why? In this case, here's the reason. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Okay, if you're with me, that's good, but 
How do I get the comfort? Well, here's the thing. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, you know enough to know that the shepherd carried two fundamental tools, among other things, but the the big tools that would give you comfort if you were afraid of the wolves on the horizon were the rod and the staff. The rod was the short stick. In Hebrew, the shabbat. It was this like club, if you will, a nightstick. And then you had the staff, the big stick. It was a walking stick, but if you are a shepherd, it was also a defensive weapon to protect the flock. I use the word nightstick because I'm used to nightsticks being laid around the house when I was a kid. I grew up as the son of a Long Beach police officer, and he was one of the rough... You know, there, there were a few nice police officers that were... Genteel, they usually wore ties to work. They were detectives or whatever. My dad was never that kind. He was the burly kind with, you know, big forearms, the big frame, the intimidating cop. And, you know, we grew up in Long Beach. I grew up in Long Beach, and my dad was a cop in Long Beach. He happened actually to patrol the area that we lived in, which I would never suggest, and park his police car in front of our house to come home for lunch, things like that that probably weren't good to mark us as the policeman's house. We, we were egged. We had people throw rocks at our house. It was a rough, you know, time. And it's gotten worse. I don't want you to paint this terrible picture that it was, you know, horrible. But, it, I mean, it was a scary time. And when something went down in our neighborhood, see, I just wanted to be as close to Dad as possible. Because I knew this. My dad was the kind of dad that not only carried his big, shiny 357 Magnum on his hip, but he had one tucked in his sock, right? He had one under his armpit. He had a big knife in his back pocket. And I knew this, man, if there were trouble in our neighborhood, and there, there was periodically, I just wanted to make sure Dad was there. And that allowed me to feel quite comfortable because I know he had kind of the supplies for a small militia on his person, and I felt like, I'm, I'll be okay. I, I, I'll be okay. It was great for me to grow up with that kind of, of strength and remembering that even if the worst kind of, of scary enemies in our neighborhood, and at times it happened, where they pulled up to our house, I, you know what? His rod and his staff, they comfort me. I know this. Dad could have taken them out. And you do know this right now, that every radicalized Muslim that's killing Christians, cutting their heads off, crucifying them in Mosul, hatcheting police officers in, in Queens, you, you do understand that God with a word could snuff them out. You know that, right? He could have every beating heart of every militant that wants to kill Christians, he could have that, that, those heartbeats stopped. Every liberal judge that wants to change and mock the morality of God and his Bible, their heart could, could stop and those lungs could stop inflating. With a word. You do know that he has all power. That out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword and his eyes are like fire. I'm quoting now Revelation chapter 1. He can speak the word and every enemy that ever wants to threaten his little flock will be vanquished with a word. I mean, he can do that. Of course, that creates the problem. Doesn't it? Why doesn't he? That's what I'm asking for. Well, that's the problem of, the, of verse 5. I know that these enemies will be surrounding me I need to not fear because he has the power to vanquish them, but I know this, he'll provide. He'll put that table before me in the presence of my enemies, and I just know if that is his sovereign plan, to let the heart keep beating in the enemies, to have all the, whatever it is for you personally, the cancer in your body, the lawsuit and the lawyers that are pursuing your business, whatever it might be, I realize he has the power to stop it, I may struggle with why he doesn't now stop it. 
But the challenge for me is to recognize he can always provide what I need in the midst of that chaotic storm. I wrote a book recently just on that topic. Why is it that God is not stopping the problem? My daughter was born uh, with a severe birth defect. You know, and you can imagine, you know, I had a whole church praying when the diagnosis came in. And everybody asked, why, why, why? And, and I'm not sure that's the right question. It's a natural question. But really what we need to realize, when God puts us in situations that are painful and difficult, and they seem challenging and, and extreme, that I just need to look for his provision in the midst of all of that. Knowing one day, he will vanquish every enemy. Every disease and every rebellious cell in your body will be rectified in the resurrection, right? It's going to be fixed. For now, though, I want to trust him. There's a passage in Mark 4. I don't need to take time to turn there, but it's labeled in most Bibles, Jesus calms the storm. Next time you run into that heading in, in Mark 4, it's a bold move, and it's not inspired, the headings, you know, I would recommend you cross that out. Because that's really not the point of Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. You might want to replace it with disciples failed the test of trust. That would be a good thing. Because in the storm, Jesus is where? He's in the boat sleeping. The disciples are freaking out, saying things like, we're going to perish out here. We're going to die. And then they ask this question. Don't you care? Don't you care that we're perishing? They woke him up frantic. Don't you care? And Jesus said, oh man, I'm sorry. I didn't know there was a storm going on. Let me fix it. Peace be still. And the storm was calm. Is that what he said? No, he did say peace be still and the storm was calmed. And that's what we teach on the flannel graph stories to our children. And I understand that's an expression of the Christological power of Christ. And I'm all about teaching that aspect of the story. But that wasn't Jesus' point. Jesus looked his disciples in the eye and he said, where is your faith? Oh, you have little faith. You don't trust me? What do you mean, don't I care that you're perishing? Are you kidding me? What I'd rather do is let this storm play out and have you join me for a nap in the stern of the boat. That would be better to demonstrate your trust that God can provide a table for you in the presence of your enemy that will feel like still waters and green pastures even though it's the valley of the shadow of death and the enemies are surrounding you. God will provide the table in the midst of your struggle. The question is how are you going to respond to it? Speaking of David, he was on the run, as I said, and Saul was after him and he was often a fugitive, and there's lots of scenes, many years. I know we picture David as killing Goliath and then ascending to the throne in Jerusalem, but there were many years, over a decade of time where he was a fugitive. And then when he did get to the throne, there was Absalom and a lot of trouble. I mean, he had so many problems. And in the midst of some of his worst problems as a fugitive running from Saul, God prepared a table before him in the presence of his enemies. Right? This little place that if you go on a tour to Israel, you'll go visit it out in the middle of the desert. It's a beautiful oasis. There's ibex running around and there's life and there's flowers. And, and here was this great little respite in the midst of the storm, the table. And, and he would say things like this when God would deliver him. He would talk about journaling and chronicling. He would, and I don't know if you're trained, if you've got an NAS, I think it, trans, it just transliterates the phrase. He calls it Selah Hamelakoth which means rock of escape. God here, again, saved my tail. 
I again was delivered and got a nice refreshing bath in the waterfall here in the beautiful, you know, lush green little oasis in the middle of the desert. Look what God has done. How great it is that he's prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. There's another godly man in the Bible, and it's hard to argue he's not a godly man. His name was Elijah. And God prepared a table before him in the presence of his enemies. You might remember he was on the run, Ahab and Jezebel chasing him. And God gives him everything he needs. He's got ravens coming to bring him lunch. Think about that. I want that. You know, I don't have to drive out and get it. The birds are going to bring me lunch. This is awesome. Laying down under the tree, resting and relaxing. And you know what Elijah said? He said, God prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Lord is my shepherd. I shall not. Is that what he said? No. You know the story? Sunday school graduates? You've heard the story. You remember what he does? God, just let me die here. I'm no better than my fathers. I'm the only one left. Everyone wants to kill me. Mike Fabar is paraphrased now. Everyone wants to kill me. Just kill me. He's suicidal. You could argue that what God provides for David in the midst of his enemies and trials is pretty much what he provides for Elijah in the midst of his. The question is, how are you going to respond? Are you going to build a pile of rocks and say, Selah Hamelikoth, look at how God provided again? Or are you going to sit there with Elijah and go, hmm, you're better off dead than with this problem and these diseases and this kind of world and this kind of morality and these decisions from those judges? What are we doing? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's provided a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I know that's tough to take our anxieties and cast them on the Lord, as Peter says, when the lion is roaring. But that's exactly the test of faith God may put us all in as we read the news tomorrow morning. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Can you go to church on the weekend and be refreshed with the good news of the gospel and then read the bad news of this world and say, Selah Hamelikoth, he's providing for me. It's all that I need. Verse 6 is a great verse. It, it is after this picture of provision. And again, this psalm really needs a series. We didn't get to touch much on verse 5, the anointing of the head with oil, which was this picture of refreshment and kind of the lotions of the day. This is not ceremonial. This is practical. Cup overflows. I have all that I need. But then he says this, Surely goodness and loving kindness or mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now again, my contention is that this psalm is about verses 4 and 5. The, the valley the surrounding of enemies around me, and how am I going to deal with it? And, and to fix this, I've got to look back at his past provision to bolster my, my heart in the present conflict. I need to walk through this knowing with great faith that he is a God who will provide in the midst of the storm. He doesn't always have to calm every storm. But the real kicker is verse 6. And it's a shame it's the shortest, but I mean, it, it's the shortest even in our thinking because I don't even know all the good things in the future that God is going to work out. I don't know what the New Jerusalem experience is going to be like completely. I just have glimpses into this, but I know the promise of God, the omnipotent God, is that He sent His Son to be our Good Shepherd, to take every sin that you and I have ever committed, nail it to His cross, to have Him call out to Telestai, it is finished, paid in full so that I could receive every blessing that a good God could ever deliver to a creature 
and I am qualified for that inheritance because of what Christ has done. I know this, that surely, these are great Hebrew words, tov, goodness, and hesed, faithful, loyal love, are going to follow me. Now, there's the word we don't... Often I hear preachers talk about tov and, and hesed, but here's the word you should really know. Follow me. That word, follow me, is a bit of a weak translation. I hate to argue with the translators here. I know it's poetic and what we're used to from the King James Bible, but it's the word radaf. And in Hebrew, the word radaf is... And you can look this up. is usually translated to chase or to pursue. It's the word that's used about Saul chasing David. It's the word that's used that you would describe Ahab and Jezebel chasing down Elijah. And I love the play on words here. Here's David who knows what it is to be chased down by bad guys that want to cut his head off. And he says, you know what's really chasing me? Tov and Hesed, the goodness of God. You know the real pursuer in my life? The faithful, loyal, loving kindness of God. That's what's pursuing me. I may not feel it all here in the shadow of the valley of death, I may not sense it when the enemies of God threaten, but I know that's chasing me down. Why? Because the promise, and the promise is, I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, this is a very short period of time to test our faith. This is a very short life. You're going to be dead a whole lot longer than you're alive. And of course, you won't be dead. As Moody said, the day that you hear I'm dead, I'll be more alive than I ever was before. But our next life is going to be a lot longer than this one. And you're going to look back at this one. Isaiah 65 gives us any hint. And and you can hardly even remember this. The test of faith in this life, we know should be overwhelming in our thinking that one day it will be replaced with the loving kindness and the goodness of God poured out and lavished to us because of the work of the Good Shepherd in our lives. That's the promise. And when I know the future, it changes everything about the present, doesn't it? If we can focus on the future, my heart can be bolstered Right now in the midst of the pain is I know where I'm going. I know how this ends. I quoted earlier Romans 8.28. And here's a passage about feeling like in the temporal span of time, I'm like a, a, a sheep led to the slaughter. But I know this, that the promise of God is those that he's, he's called and, and predestined and he, he's, he's justified, he's going to glorify And I know that he's going to work all things out in this drama of my life and in my generation and my kids and my grandkids. He's going to work all of that out for good. It's going to be a path that's etched out of his righteousness. I'm going to see that. I'm going to look back from heaven's perspective. Yeah, this this is exactly, exactly as he promised. I've got three kids, as your pastor said. Two are in high school, a senior in high school and a junior in high school. They're both boys. And then my youngest daughter, who I spoke of, who's paralyzed from the knees down and several medical issues, and she's in sixth grade now and doing well. And uh, we don't watch a lot of TV, but the TV we do watch, we usually record on our TiVo, right? Your DVR. And um, usually when we're cleaning up from kitchen, you know, the kitchen after dinner, and we're washing up if we're all at home, which is rare these days at one time. But we, we got into a show that, I don't know, my kids got into it, that, of course, I hadn't watched for years. And, and that's Jeopardy. Okay? I don't know how my kids got into Jeopardy, but they got into watching Jeopardy. And so we said, well, yeah, let's just put it on the DVR and let's tape a bunch of episodes of, of Jeopardy. And then, you know, when we got a chance as a family, we'll watch it. Now, I kind of think I figured out why they're into it because, you know, you like to think all your kids are bright. And, you know, I, I think mine are okay. They're, they're, they're pretty bright. But then there's usually one kid that you know is, I mean, if you were honest, you would never tell their siblings this, but you know that that kid's brighter than his siblings. Uh, well, I got one like that, and that's my, my middle kid. 
And he's sharp and really smart and all the advanced classes and all that. So I think he got into this because he realized he could answer some of these questions. I mean, these are hard questions. Have you watched Jeopardy lately? It hasn't gotten any easier. I mean, it is a hard show, hard questions, and, and you're, all these things that they're asking about. And so he's starting to get some of these. And so he's feeling good, so he wants to watch it. And so, you know, after dinner, we'll turn, turn on a little Jeopardy. Well, like I said, it's hard to get all of us together for dinner at the same time. And one night, not too long ago, uh, my middle son happened to be at some ministry event at the church or something, and it was just the four of us. And so we turned on Jeopardy, and we watched an episode, and we cleaned the dishes and sweeped the floor and cleaned up, and we, you know, it was great. You know, I didn't know half the answers, but it was, it was great. The next night, we all happened to be there. And uh, it was time to clean up, so we turned on the TV, said, as we're cleaning up, we'll watch a little Jeopardy. And I winked at my daughter, who's in sixth grade, and I turned on the Jeopardy we had seen the night before. We, we usually watch it and erase it, but I, I thought, well, my son hasn't watched it, and he's the big Jeopardy fan, so I saved it. But now I thought, let's just watch it again. It was great. I mean, it really was. I hate to say it. It was great. I mean, here is everybody in the family. You know, my wife's at the sink calling out, you know, uh, what is the Oslo Accord, you know? And I mean, just crazy answers from left field. And my sixth grade daughter, and we hit every single answer. And my middle son, you know, Mr. Advanced Placement Kid, is going nuts. (laughs) He thought he was the stupidest guy in the world. And I watched him get so nervous, you know, everything about it. Even at the end, the whole, you know, write it down and the da-na-na-na-na. And he's stressing out and we're just, we're smiling. We know the answer. It's amazing how when you watch how it all plays out, how your heart is so different than the one who has no clue where this is going. Non-Christians read the news as... Proverbs 28.1 says, the wicked, they, they, they flee when no one pursues them. They're really jumpy and anxious and worried. Your non-Christian counterpart, I mean, they should be anxious. This world's a scary place. You see, we know how this ends, do we not? We know where this is going. Surely goodness and mercy are going to chase me down. And at the end, I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We do a lot of flying. I <laughs> Had a little flying experience yesterday. You have that long trip from coast to coast. And I'll tell you, people, it seems, when I was younger and, and traveled, it seemed like people were more talkative. Now people are not very talkative on the planes. Maybe it's me, but I don't know. They just seem to want to be into themselves, put their headphones on. And, you know, on certain flights that are like four or five hours long, when the kids start crying behind you, and it seems like, I don't know, there's less leg room than there used to be. I don't think I'm growing any at all, but it seems everything's getting smaller. It's really cramped and it's, it's awful. And, and it's like you're looking at your watch and that's what you try not to do. You're fighting, right? Don't look at it. Well, how much time's left? And you, you just, oh, two hours left. Oh, hour and a half left. Oh, don't look at it. Oh, hour and, and 20 minutes left. Oh, it's just awful. And everybody's cranky and no one wants to. You, you get eye contact with the guy across the aisle and he looks away. And, you know, the kid keeps crying behind you. And then everything changes. And I say this, when you hear that line, 
And this is we've begun our final descent into the Los Angeles area. Please bring your seat backs and tray tables into full and upright position. I got that down pretty well, don't I? That's the line. You hear it, right? To you, it's whatever. Charlotte or wherever you're coming into. Everybody's attitude changes suddenly. The guy that didn't want to talk to you, he's willing to chat now, right? I mean, the people that are so cranky, everybody now, I mean, nothing's changed. The baby hasn't stopped crying behind me, right? I have no more leg room than I had 10 minutes ago. But everybody now kind of perks up. They, they get excited. And, and I'm saying something to you that's counterintuitive this morning. I want you to have more confidence, more boldness. I want you to have no fear of this world. And you're saying, but it's getting worse. And I'm saying it's right on schedule. The forecast was it's going to get worse. Wars, rumors of wars. There are going to be earthquakes and famines. It's going to get bad. And then the reason I say that is because Jesus said it's a lot like birth pangs. See, no gal I know gets pregnant for the labor experience, right? <laughs> they do it for the baby. They want the baby. And Jesus said, the end of time is going to be like birth pangs. And you may be saying, well, this is really bad. Globally, it's really, it, it is, and it's going to get worse. But you see, the closer we get to the eschaton, to the end, to the appearing of Christ, right, the more the pain ramps up in this world. I just want us to realize it, it's kind of like that last kind of 15 minutes of the flight. It's, it's time to bring our, our seat backs and tray tables to their full and upright position. And then it's time to get a little chatty about home, right? We're almost there. It's almost time. Because we are going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Don't forget that. Don't forget it. Hey, Christian, it's your responsibility and mine to be unafraid. Right? Psalm 112, the righteous will never be shaken. Never be shaken. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is steadfast because he trusts in the Lord. Right? His heart is upheld. He will not be afraid. Let's get out there this week in light of all the bad news and be fearless. Let's pray. God, we want to be fearless. We need to be fearless. Not because we have any power in and of ourselves to conquer the threats that we see on the horizon and hear about in the news every day. I know I've kind of painted this picture on a broad scale, but I know there's personal issues in many of the lives I speak to this morning that are threats maybe that no one else even knows about. And it's painful. So God, allow us to do what the Bible constantly calls us to do. To eradicate fear with trust. To know that you are our shepherd. We are your little flock. And we know the forecast is that it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. But we are going to not fear. We're going to be immovable and steadfast. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Never afraid. I love that picture in in Proverbs 31 that you gave us, Lord, where the, 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 the righteous and wise woman, she smiles at the future. Not afraid. Not afraid. We've taken the proper spiritual preparation and provision. It's there. We trust in your Son. Help us not to be like those disciples and call out, don't you care that we're perishing? Let us be a lot more like David, who recognizes you delivered us from the paw of the lion and the bear in the past. Through many trials, toils, and snares, we have already come. His grace has brought us safe thus far, and grace will bring us home. Amen. It's the time that uh, we get to respond. The word of the Lord has been delivered, and um, it was very clear. I praise God for it. I was just sitting there thinking... Um,
you, you, you couldn't be here and live in this world. You couldn't be here with all of the, uh, the mental Olympics that, that goes on in your own heart and mind and, and it not, it not hit home. Um, what is it that you're fearing, uh, if you are, um, we're going to sing all the way uh, my Savior leads me. Fanny Crosby. Uh, she, she sure had plenty of things that she, uh, she could have feared or, or complained about. When you sing, we've already prayed, but when, when you sing, uh, sing it as, uh, as praise to the Lord that He will lead you. Respond even in the singing of the song. And if, if there's something that you're still fearing, there's something that still is gripping your heart. Uh, sing it as a prayer. Uh, respond uh, to the Lord. If there's something that's overwhelming you, where you, you hear the word and you know what, you, 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 it's clear, you know what God has said for you to do, and yet you're still wrestling in the midst of that. Avail yourself of the grace of God, which is the body of Christ and others around you. If it's overtaken you, um, Call on someone, as Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, to help them, to help you uh, bear your burden that's too heavy for one person to carry. It's not a day pack. It's a, it's a heavy burden. And uh, there'll, there'll be somebody here who no doubt has walked where you've, where you've walked. Always remember, God will never ask you to dig a well in the desert. And he doesn't have someone else come along and drink out of it and usually give you a drink. After that long, hot period of time, it's toilsome to dig a well, isn't it? But oh, it's great when the water starts flowing. If you're digging the well, um, there's water down there. It's coming. All right, let's stand and sing. back tonight. Pastor Mike will be back again. We'll be back in the book of, uh, of Psalms. So um, come and, and listen and uh, you're welcome to encourage him before, uh, before you leave. All right. Lord, we love you and praise you and thank you for your truth today. Dismiss us with your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.